This is John Wibben, author of Future Marketing, Winning in the Prosumer Age, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which is named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing and sales. And don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, which is also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. Also, if you want to really excite your host, that would be me, and you're not driving or operating dangerous machinery at the moment, please hop on Twitter and tell me where in the world you're listening from. My Twitter handle is Marketing Book. Today, we welcome John Wibben to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, Future Marketing, Winning in the Prosumer Age. John Wibben is an author, keynote speaker, and the CEO of Content Launch, a content marketing firm which offers a content marketing software platform and content writing and content strategy services. He is the author of two other books, Content is Currency, Developing Powerful Content for Web and Mobile, and Content Rich, Riding Your Way to Wealth on the Web. And, interesting fact, he is a part-time pop songwriter and is releasing his first album this year. John, congratulations on future marketing and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks, Doug. Appreciate you having me. In the book, Future Marketing, you talk about the, the movie Minority Report quite a bit, but I was surprised that you never mentioned one of the greatest movies in the history of cinema that dealt with the future. And I'm, I'm referring to Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. <laughs> and, and in it, as you may recall, I don't know, you, maybe you don't go to these lowbrow movies, but he's talking to the CIA agent, Felicity Shagwell, and he comes back from the future. And uh, she says, so Austin, tell me about the future. And he says, well, everyone has their own flying car. Entire meals come in pill form, and the earth is run by damn dirty apes. Oh, my Lord. With a reference to Planet of the Apes. And so, you know, I read through the whole book, and I, I didn't find any of that. There was a good reason why it's not in there. But just wanted to mention that and, and let you know, kind of, you know, you're only young once, but you can be immature forever. So <laughs> that part has never <laughs> left me. Yeah. I'll include in the second edition. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you. Or maybe just in the footnotes. So there you go. let me start with a, an excerpt from the book, which not actually at the beginning, but I thought it was uh, very pertinent to the listener. One of the key issues with most marketing departments today is that sound strategic planning is rarely practiced. And that goes for the entire organization as well. As we progress over the next 15 years, especially as the world is changing so dramatically, it will become critical. Planning will need to get much better. And quite honestly, this is one of the key reasons I wrote Future Marketing. I really want this book to be used as a guide to help plan for the future. Let's face it, most people are preoccupied with their current work and have difficulty finding time for strategic thinking. When they do, there's often uncertainty about how to approach such a huge challenge, especially where there is so much unknown ahead of us. Throw in the fact that some C-suite executives don't really understand the benefits of strategic visions and goals, the value of forecasting, and how to involve the organization. Most CMOs and CEOs focus on near-term goals, 
ignoring the pivotal and tectonic cultural and technological changes surrounding them on all sides. And this is the key. Those companies who can really embrace long-term strategic marketing planning will be the ones that survive and thrive and make it to the year 2030. So, John, before we get into the future, let's talk about where we are now. And I'd like to ask you to describe the state of what you call marketing nation and touch on why you think this is the best time ever to be a marketer. Yeah, well, that was quite a mouthful that you just regurgitated there. And, and uh, it's funny hearing myself, my writing you know, spoken back to me. But as you were reading that, I was thinking to myself, yeah, you know, it sounds even better hearing it than when I was writing it. And it is so true. And I think one of the reasons for that is, you know, corporate folks, you know, CMOs, marketers, folks that are in business, you know, I, I don't want to make a blank, blanket statement, but I do talk about creativity a lot in the book and being innovative. And I will tell you, that my personal feeling, and I believe a lot of others feel this way too, is that most folks who are in the corporate mindset are not typically the most creative or innovative people on a personal level. Okay, And that is why it's so important that they invite creative, introverted, innovative people into their companies and their marketing departments and give them a seat at the table for long-range planning. Because you've got to be thinking out of the box. You've got to be really super creative to to really be out there and, and think about what, where things could be three, four, five years down the road for your company. So I wanted to mention that because I see it as an epidemic across corporate America. It, it's almost like if the person's a little weird or a little bit out there, or a little too creative, they're not quite going to fit the culture of our company. And I think that's a real problem. Um, and so I talk about creativity rising as a skill set over the next 10, 12 years and I think it's really important for these corporate types out there and these agency folks to invite super creative people into their organizations to help them be innovative and make decisions and help with that long range planning. Now, the corporate folks are really super good at being organized and being efficient and setting goals and putting metrics out there. And it's really the combination of that mindset, which they're very, very good at, and that creative mindset coming together for that, that's the, the magic that will help them plan for the long range. So I wanted to mention that because that was, as you were reading that back, I'm like, that's, that's what I want to say here. Because I just don't think that's being said enough. So I want to beat that drum a bit. Well, you know, let me just add to that, John. You mentioned, you quoted David Howell. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, H-O-U-L-E at the end of the book. And you talked about how he said the world, we're moving from a left brain century to a right brain century. Just to, yeah. Just to add to that. Very interesting. Yeah. And I don't think I answered your question there, but... <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about... You, you talk quite a bit about Philip Kotler, who's had the honor of interviewing for my 100th episode, and sort uh -huh. of how he sort of set the stage of sort of where we are here. And people don't always appreciate what a pioneering thinker he was, yeah. but just sort of set it where it is now as a reference for where, where we're going to go. Yeah, so Phil Kotler is a friend of mine. I'm very thankful to count him as a friend. He read my book as well, and I was very grateful that he took the time to do that. I heard back from him uh, just recently on, on the book. And yeah, so Phil Kotler, uh, every marketer out there should know who he is. And again, it's very surprising how few do know who he is. And the fact is, he's been around a long time. He's in his late 70s. He's, um, he's 85. Let me correct you there. <laughs> and he's written 55 books. Yeah, he looks like he's younger than that. Um, yeah, yeah, he looks quite young. 
he's still active and still out there and, you know, still writing books and things. But so Phil wrote some groundbreaking books in the, in the 60s, and he came up with the, the four P's of marketing, essentially, uh, which we've been using for 50 years, the four P's of marketing, you know, product, price, promotion, place. And they've, they've served us well for a long time. But one of my tenets in the book is we really need to kind of uh, modify that. And so I came up with this new marketing construct of EP squared. And EP squared is engagement, experiences, personalization, and passion. Those four things are all centered around the customer or the prosumer, as I'm calling the customer now. And I think that this new marketing construct will serve us well over the next 12 years because it is all customer focused. And, and I'd be happy to talk about each individual piece of that. But back to your original question, yeah, Phil and others like him really set the stage for what we know as marketing today. And, and so I think it's important to take a lesson from, from Dr. Kotler and that um, it's important to have a long range vision and be, be creative. And, and that's what Phil was back in the 60s and 70s is he sort of set the stage and helped us all understand what marketing is and could be. So we all need to take a lesson from him and, and try and all be that way ourselves. And, and you think this is the best time ever to be a marketer, even though there's probably a lot of listeners who are pulling their hair out on a daily basis? I think it is because even though some folks think that, you know, over time things get more confusing, more complicated, more complex, if you look, you know, back 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, we've made great strides and great advancements in every every area of life, uh, not only marketing, but everything, culture, commerce, you name it. And that's exactly what's happening now is we're, things are getting, actually things are getting easier. Things are getting more efficient. Things are getting more affordable. They will become more affordable over time with that efficiency. So although it seems hectic and it seems complicated and a lot of noise, things are actually much better than they were 10 or 20 or 30 years ago on any measure. So I do think it's the best time to be a marketer because there's incredible opportunity, incredible technology that, that's coming online just now with virtual reality and augmented reality and the sharing economy, all kinds of new cool stuff that we can really dig into. And it helps us get closer to our customer. So yes, I think it is the best time to be a marketer. So the book title again is Future Marketing, Winning in the Prosumer Age. John, what is a prosumer? Yep, that's the number one question. So prosumer was a term that Alvin Toffler, the futurist Alvin Toffler, coined in 1980 in his book, The Third Wave. He was a futurist in the 60s, uh, 70s, and 80s. And I read his book, The Third Wave, when I was 11 years old. Uh, I was actually mesmerized by it. It was incredible. He talked about what we'd be doing today in 2017 back in 1980. And he talked about this prosumer being a mashup of producer and consumer, where we're wearing both hats and we're serving both roles. And no matter where you look around the world today and, and the companies we do business with, in many ways, we are serving as both helping them produce the experience and the service as well as consuming it at the same time. Whether it's Amazon and all the reviews we give on Amazon for the things that we buy there, or it's Facebook and we're creating all the content on Facebook, not Facebook. And there's countless other companies, right, where we're helping them produce the experience or produce some of the marketing for them. So, so now we are prosumers. And so I really think because there's been so many people that, that can fall into that category that we really are now in a new age, and I'm calling it the prosumer age. So a little controversy. You say in the book that networks and relationships matter more than any marketing message. and But you explain that traditional marketers still stuck in the old paradigm of pushing messages on people really, really don't like this idea. Why is that? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I think you either fall into two categories, either you're comfortable with change or you're not. And I don't think there's anything in between. 
Uh, if you're comfortable with change, then you embrace everything that's new in some in some degree. But I think we really need to fight against the folks that are pushing back and, and remaining traditional and kind of sort of afraid or hesitant about what's coming. And so we get comfortable. And these folks, they like what they like, and they want to do things the way they want to do things. And you just can't be that way in business or marketing anymore. I'm sorry. If, if that's your mindset, if that's your personality, you probably need to find something else to do. Because now and into the future, it belongs to the innovators. It belongs to the open-minded people who are willing to go there and embrace new ways of doing things. So yeah, networking and being open and all that stuff, that's you know, there, there's a lot of lack of control there, right? And I think a lot of traditionalists, they like the control thing. They like to predict outcomes. They, you know, they think they, they think they still own the brand, right? And they don't, right. you know, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so that whole thing, I think it's, I think that's really the wall that divides us is those who are open and those that aren't. And, and I really do think it's, it, it, it falls between those two categories. I don't think there's a lot of people in between. You're either open to new ideas in the future or you're not. And, I hate to put it out there like that, but I think that's probably true. Yeah, but you know, I agree completely. And I think it's almost like maybe somebody who wants to go into marketing now, they need to take a personality test. Not yeah. one based on how much they know about marketing, but do they have the personality that's going to make them comfortable with change and you know being able to iterate quickly? Let me just add to what you said just with one other quote from the book here. And I'm reading these not because I enjoy the sound of my own voice. <laughs> I, I like the book. The primary focus of marketing promotion used to be to create cool ads that would drive awareness. Today, ads don't always lead to a sale and more likely result in an internet search where consumers' behavior can be tracked and then retargeted by competitors. It's not about getting a purchase anymore. It's about getting them to participate. And it's about having a purpose and passion that others can get behind and benefit from. That will be the new marketing superpower in 2021. And you also quoted from Dana Middleton's book. I won't read that, but it was marketing in the participation age, which was just, you know, it was, it was, it was so true. And I, I have not read that book, but you combine that with what you talk about what's coming and it really became, I guess, uh, painfully apparent <laughs> as yeah. to where the problems are now. But just a couple of predictions and there's so many in the book and you, you're not pulling them out of thin air. You, you know, you, you explain how they all come, but just a, a few that I, I know would be really interesting right off the bat for the listener. You explain that digital marketing as a term will not even be in the lexicon anymore and that it will become augmented immersive experiences or what you call augmenting, which you touched on earlier. Explain why that's going to happen. Yeah. And this is, I've already gotten a little controversy or pushback on this one. Well, that's a good uh, thing. But yeah, that's fine. I welcome that. Again, I'm I'm looking out 13 years from now, right? And a lot of things are going to change in the next 13 years. And I really see that we're sort of at touch point. We're sort of at a, a tipping point, if you will, in that, and then Ray Kurzweil talks about the singularity, right? If you know Ray Kurzweil in his book, The Singularity, I think that because things are, are changing now so fast and they will continue to change rapidly over the next 13 years, that the very thing we call marketing, right, that very term needs to be amended or modified because it, the very foundation of, of this practice, you know, engaging with customers or, or finding our customers, what we do in marketing, it's going to be rocked to the core in terms of the things we do day to day and the, the, how we plan. 
I think we'll need a new name for it. So will it be digital? Yes, but not in the way we know digital today. Because if it's augmented, augmenting our, our reality, is that still digital or is that aug augment something different than digital, right? So, and, and then the idea of, of immersive you know, experiences. Experiences are going to be everything. You won't, you won't be able to just sell a product or service anymore. It's going to be, it's going to have to be an experience or a product that has an experience along with it or a service and an experience combination. And the, augment, the augmentation of our reality is going to be the new normal, right? And that's very hard for us to realize now. But everywhere we go, everything we do, our reality will be augmented by an overlay of information from the web all around us, right? And it's not going to be, it'll be our choice whether we want to bring that up or not. It's not going to be following us around. But because that whole thing, our reality and the way we experience reality is going to change so much, I really do think that we need a new name for, for marketing as a, as a practice. Um, and, and I could be wrong, but I could be right, you know? Well, yeah. And, and man, you say digital marketing, but it's also like I've heard Joe Polizzi and Robert Rose, who both endorsed your book, they've talked about how content marketing you're probably going to not see it referred to that in the future. It's going to become understood that that's just a big part of marketing. And in my sense is that it's almost like the whole term of marketing is going to get rebooted with a much wider understanding of what it always has been. But for the longest time, people have thought of it primarily as promotion. Yeah, right. Well, and I think the whole prosumer thing and, and us getting closer to our customers and them participating and, and that increasing, I think that's going to help redefine everything significantly as well. So it's it's the combination of the technology changes and the changes in consumers um, and our customers combined that's going to affect what this all becomes. I guess I'm trying to open people's minds a little bit with that because I think when we say marketing, it's real easy for us to kind of fall back into the four P's and you know just what marketing's always been. Yeah. And because you know, I, a I just, comfortable it's, construct. Yeah, like four P's. and I kind of want people to be uncomfortable a little bit, you know, because yeah. I think that's where that's where change and innovation and progress comes from. Well, and and back to being uncomfortable, and the thing that drives certain people crazy, including a lot of traditional marketers, is you said centralized control of anything in the future will be seen as archaic or a construct of the twentieth century. Can you say yeah. more about that? And that's that's quite a quite a statement as well, right? Because it's not I just think, marketing. Yeah, well, I think we're fighting against the human default here. I think a lot of human beings, and again, I talk about that earlier. How you know the folks that are open versus not open, traditional versus you know not non traditional, progressive. I, I think I think that can also be said here is that just you know human beings by default, some of them are fearful and scared before they're optimistic and positive, right? And if there's anything I want people to get from this book is I want them to find some kind of optimism for the future. Uh, because I felt that and read that in all the books that I read in my researching for this book, whether it was Ray Kurzweil or Thomas Fry or, or Alvin Toffler, all these futurists, man, super optimistic, positive people. And are they wrong in a lot of their predictions? Yes. They are. But you know what? We're predicting the future, and that's really hard for anyone to do. And I, I say that if they're batting 300, they're doing pretty well. So it's like baseball. You know, if you're if you're predicting three out of 10 things in the future and they come true, I think you're doing well. So anyways, yeah, I, I think, you know, that there's going to be so much change. We just need to hold on, and, and it's going to be an exciting ride for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I can remember reading Megatrends and Future Shock years and years ago yep. and, and being kind of excited by it. And right. the the thing about it is, does it have to be 100% accurate? Well, no, and, and it won't be. 
But it reminds me of General Eisenhower, who apparently, you know, he was nobody was a better planner than he was. Uh-huh. He, he planned the Normandy invasion. He became a U.S. president. But he said that he found that plans are worthless. But the planning process is what is so invaluable. And so just the fact that you're thinking ahead and moving in that direction, it's just like that opening quote I offered, it, it sort of is enough to light a match to get you thinking about the possibilities and I would think uh, get you excited. Yeah, totally agree with that. There's always unexpected positive things that, that come up during the planning process and in life, right? But but in the planning process, there's all kinds of unexpected coincidences, serendipitous events that happen during that planning process that are critical because you're opening your mind up to new things, to innovative approaches. And by doing that, by opening up that right brain sensibility, new great things can come out of that. So I think the planning process in and of itself, as you mentioned, it serves a lot of value. And again, my point being this book that we just don't do enough of that in a long range fashion um, as companies, as agencies. And so, yeah, I hope that's one benefit from, from my book for the reader is that that they do become better planners or they think about things maybe a little more long range just just by reading the book. Well, and I think that it might remove a bit of fear, which is such a natural thing that is brought on by any kind of change. But let's uh, let's change gears. One other question I just wanted to ask you about. You say that over the next 15 years, web pages and browsers will be far less important and that it will be all about flows and streams. Mm-hmm. Please explain. Yeah, so that's not actually my idea. I, in my research, I came across that. I can't remember who uh, came up with that idea, but I definitely wanted to include it because I thought it was really interesting. Well, in the book, you were very clear about you know <laughs> citing your sources, so I'm, I'm yeah, not trying yeah. to imply that you, you wrote that. I, I didn't realize that. No, that's okay. But yeah, you know, I think, again, again, I'm trying to get the reader out of the normal traditional constructs of how things are right now today because how things are right now today on the web is not how it's going to be three or four or five years from now. It's going to be vastly different. And and so uh, it, I think by saying that, just by putting that in the book, be, by being provocative in that way, it really makes people go, oh, wow, well, that's kind of interesting. Um, let me think about that, right? So for that reason alone, I think it's important to mention stuff like that. And I mentioned, I do things like that a lot in the book where it's kind of like, whoa, that's kind of, wow, I had never thought about that. So flows and streams, though, let's let's get to... Yeah, so flows and streams. So the way Twitter and Facebook, right, the way you can see things, it's like a stream. And you, when you, whenever you come into Twitter or Facebook, you, you see what's happening right then and, and that, in that moment. You see what's being said, the updates that are happening right in that moment from your friends or followers. But you're missing stuff that happened two hours ago or three hours ago because you're, that's when you came into the stream, right? So I think the way Twitter and Facebook do that, that's sort of how the web is going to be right in the future is it will be a big stream, a big river of information. And when we come in is when we come in and when we go out is when we go out. But I just want to get people away from that whole like static, like what you see right now is, is the only thing you can see. It's just a different way of seeing the web. And I think that that's one reason why Twitter was so groundbreaking and so interesting when it first came out is because they did approach it from a different they had that format, right, of sort of that, you know, it was just sort of a river of information and you only saw what you saw when you came in and you'd have to go back and see what your other, if you had a lot of people following you and vice versa, there's just a ton of, of updates in there. So, but no, I think, I think that is going to be partially true in terms of the, the construct of the, of the web. I remember when I read it, I read it about a year ago in the New York Times, I think is where I saw it. 
And I thought, wow, that is super interesting. And I mean, you could write a book just on that idea alone. <laughs> it got my attention too. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, it's, uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But well, you know, well, let's let's talk a bit more about the experiences because that was one of the really clear things in your book. And I've certainly interviewed some other just fantastic authors on the show about experiences and why they're becoming so important. And you explained that. Let's see. The big idea is this: in the future. Products will turn into services, which will turn into experiences. Why are the experiences your customers have such a big part of the future of marketing? Shoot, why are they so important now versus yeah. 10 years ago? Well, we're just not brand loyal anymore, right? I mean, it's it's very rare that we, we stay with a company for a long, long time and keep buying their products and services. There's just that loyalty factor is just not there anymore because we need, we're need we more demanding as as consumers. We, we expect more from the companies we do business with, and we, we have lots of demands, right? Well, and all most products are good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the other thing is the quality's increased across the board. So it's gotten more competitive. And and yes, there are lots of replacement goods for another good, right? So yes, absolutely, the quality's increased across the board. Competition's increased across the board. But at the same time, you got to do a lot more as a company to keep that customer, right? So how do you keep that customer? Well, if you offer them an experience, there's a greater likelihood you're going to keep them because an experience is sticky and the value of the experience lasts. You have a memory of the experience. You typically do it with family and friends or coworkers. So there's that human bonding element, right? I mean, people, when you're doing things, that makes people happier than when they, they have things, right? It's that whole engagement and interaction thing. And, you know, you, an, you anticipate an experience more than you anticipate a purchase that you, that you bought, right? Yes. So there's that whole idea. Uh, so, yeah, I think, I think in the future, um, if you're a company that just does products and services today, you're going to have to find a way to build an experience into that. And I think in the B2C world, you see really good examples of this, especially at the retail level, whether whether it's Bass Pro Shops or REI or the Pike Place Fish Market in Seattle. If you if you engage in any of the, one of those three uh, companies, you will see an experience unfold right before your eyes. And so the idea is in the B2B world, how can we take that that experience thing that I think a lot of B2C companies have done very well and apply that to a B2B format. That's that's one question I get a lot as well. I get it with Bass Pro Shops and Pike Play. I get how they, that's an experience, but how do we do that in B2B? So I think there's a lot of creative ways to do that. But back to your question, yeah, I think in the future, you'll have greater you know, longevity as a company and, and greater brand loyalty and more loyal customers in general if you have, find a way to create and sell an experience to them. And then keep doing that over and over again, and and I, you know, I think that that's just a, a really good good idea for for companies to start thinking about. And you know, people think of oh, experiences Disney. Well, I'm no Disney. Well, let me let me just interject something here. Where I go to get my haircut across the street from my office, they've started afterwards. They just put a a warm washcloth on your neck to get the the hair off, and it just feels good. Right. One little step made it for a nicer experience. Or the, the HVAC, the air conditioning company that comes and services my house's units, we know that within 20 to 30 minutes after that technician leaves the house, my wife or I get a phone call saying, is it working? Is everything okay? Is there right. anything you want to share with us you didn't want to tell the technician? Yep. Holy cow. Do you have any concept what a differentiator that is and the fact that I'm here talking about it? Something yeah. as simple as that. Is, is an experience that you can you can engineer. And there is so much in the book about uh, why experiences are, are so 
so very important and how they're hard to duplicate and they're the most competitive, powerful marketing you have. But you're in the content marketing business in a big way, and I was <laughs> pleased to see that content marketing will be alive and well in the future. But how will it be different, and how is content marketing going to change the future? Yeah, well, yeah, so content marketing will be around still, but it'll be virtual reality content marketing and augmented reality content marketing, right? And so the technology is really going to come in and, and, and redefine what content marketing is. And we're seeing that today, you know, with, with Audi and Volkswagen, for example, you can do a virtual reality test drive in one of their vehicles. And, and you can certainly, you know, provide content that way, you know, educational, tutorial, relevant content in a, in a virtual reality way. So I think, you know, I mean, content will always be important, valuable educational content. It's just the context and how it's delivered to the customer is, is change. Um, and the fact that it's going to be easier to connect and find your audience, right, because of AI and because the mass efficiency and all these new technologies and because, you know, ads will be more targeted and you'll be able to find your audience through ads. So ads aren't going to go away either. But I think for all those reasons, yeah, content marketing will be here, but it'll just modify the way the context and the delivery mechanism and how, how we're able to find our find our tribe, if you will, or find our audience. Right. Now, one thing, yet another thing that just kind of stopped me was, you know, this idea of telling stories and, and storytelling. And I don't mean Hansel and Gretel necessarily. It's just there's a, a very specific approach to it. And it works really well in sales, uh, tremendously well in content. You explained that we need to move from stories to narratives. And so stories are, a, a, like I said, a great way to attract attention and create emotional engagement. But you say that narratives are even better. So what's the difference? And, and why are narratives better? Well, so I think for a lot of folks, you know, that whole storytelling thing has been around for a few years now. And, and telling your story has been sort of a, a buzzword, right? Yeah. And I think a misunderstood one by a lot of people too. Yeah. I mean, a story has a, a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? And there's an emotional connection there. And typically there are characters in a story, so you can be drawn to the characters. A narrative, on the other hand, is more of a sequence of events, right? It has no standard form or structure. It has no distinct beginning or end, right? We, we can play an active role in it and we can participate in it, but it's just it's different in the way that, that it feels, right? So, for example, like, you know, Jack Kerouac's On the Road, right? That great epic book. That's a story, right? But Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, that's a narrative, right? So that if you compare those two, you can see the difference. Also, you can think of Apple's Think Different campaign, right? That whole Think Different campaign that came out in the late 90s that featured those cool ads with Gandhi and Martin Luther King. That is a narrative as well, right? That wasn't so much a story, but a narrative. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, right? That was a narrative. Okay, so so I hope with those examples, people can start seeing the difference between a story, a storytelling approach, and a narrative. All stories are narratives, but not all narratives are stories. And I think that's an important distinction. So, okay, well, let me ask you a question about something that just warmed the cockles of my marketing heart. <laughs> it was <laughs> about customer centricity. And you, you say that marketing will go from like strategic planning based around products and services to strategy based around customers and that by the year 2030, marketing decisions will be 100% customer centric. So why is it not done now? And, and why is why are people going to understand this in the future? Yeah, 
Well, it goes back to that whole thing that we, as company people, as marketers, we all fall in love with our own products and services in our company. We think that we're amazing and, you know, and that's great. I, that, that's good. You want to feel confident and you want to feel good about your company, your products and services. But I think most of us fall too in love with our stuff, right? And, and we don't realize that, hey, without our customers, we wouldn't even be a company. It, you know, we talked earlier about, about this and it's not about getting sales anymore. It's about building an audience, it always has been about building an audience, but now and into the future, it has to be building an audience first before thinking about the sales. Because if you can build an audience and connect with that audience and embrace them and, and make them feel welcome, then they're going to give you their business, right? I mean, that they're just going to. That's human nature. So there's this very few companies that focus on that first. And so because things are going to get more efficient. And because quality, as we mentioned, has increased you know, across the board, because there's not as much brand loyalty anymore, company loyalty, the whole building an audience thing and the whole thing about being customer focused, that's why, for all those reasons, that's why it's going to become the only way in the future is to go with that methodology, that approach. Yeah, it's like the, there's going to be the quick and the dead. And I think in the future, they're just going to realize you can't keep making it all about yourself. And that's why in the book, it was very interesting to me when you talked about the arrogance of the four Ps. Yeah. Because it's still, it's very much about the company rather yeah. than the other paradigm that I'm going to ask you about next. But just to add to this customer centricity, yesterday I read that Jeff Bezos the founder of Amazon, is now the second richest person in the world. And I've heard that at meetings at Amazon, if someone from Amazon is listening and I'm wrong, please let me know. But I've, I mean, I, I read this, I read this about him, that he'll go to the meetings in the conference rooms and he wants an empty chair there. Or he's asked for an empty chair. And because during the meeting, he ends up pointing at that empty chair and the empty chair represents the customer. Uh -huh. And he's the one that still has to be bringing up the idea of the customer. Everyone else there's like got their heads down, focusing on what they're supposed to be focusing on. But yeah. I heard that as people get ready for a meeting with the boss, they say, oh, wait a minute. You know what? He's going to point at that damn chair again. Oh, that's right. The customer. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the four Ps of marketing, you talked about that earlier, a construct that's worked really well. Explain what the new one should be as, as you outline in your book. Yeah. So, you know, the four P's have served us well and it's been a long time that we've used it. Um, and there have been other marketing constructs that have come up over the last few years. But I think in light of the prosumer age, in light of all the things I'm talking about in the book that, and this kind of came late in my research, the idea of a new marketing construct, but I really wanted to come up with something big and interesting for this book. And so I came up with what I'm calling EP squared. And as I mentioned earlier, it's engagement, experiences, personalization, and passion. Those, so two E's and two P's. And each of those components focuses on the relationship you have with your prosumer customers. It's all about the customer. And each of these four help you help remind you that it's about the customer. So engagement is where are you interfacing with that customer? Is it online? Is it in person? You know, how are you engaging with them and how often? Are you engaging with them? Yeah. yeah <laughs> That's a yeah. great question you, to ask. Are you talking to them? Are you... Are you like picking up the phone once in a while and like, or Skype and talking to them, actually having a conversation? Hey, there's, there's a revolutionary idea. Are you treating uh, them like a friend? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Are you treating them like a human being for God's sakes? So yeah. Make um, up your second, own airline joke. Go ahead. <laughs> and then so experiences, right? I've talked about experiences a lot. We talked about it a lot on this call, but, but experiences are going to be 
the zeitgeist, right? They are going to be everything. It's it's not going to be about products and services anymore. It's going to be about, about experiences. So I, I want to make sure that was in the construct. Personalization, that idea has been around for a long time. It's, you know, personalizing your emails and personalizing the social content that you put up on Facebook and personalization. Everyone likes to hear their name, right? And everyone will always like to hear their name, but that's going to be more important in the future. So the idea of personalizing everything is going to be super important. So that belongs in the construct. And let me add, John, in the book, for the listener's benefit, you talk about how click-through rates could start to become 100% because the personalization will be so effective. Yeah. Well, imagine, and we talk about big data, right? The whole big data thing. We've been talking about that for a few years now. Imagine if you've got 200 pieces of information on every customer in your database. That's going to enable you to make it super personal, right? I mean, that's that's a lot of information on that one customer. So I think, again, technology is enabling us to make things more personal. But I also want to say that it's not just about the big data and, and knowing what their likes and dislikes are. It's about actually interfacing with them as a human being one-on-one, face-to-face, right? That, that old that, that idea has been around forever, as long as we've, we've walked this planet. So in some ways, we're going back to things that we did 30 or 40 years ago in that respect and making things more authentic and genuine, right? And that leads right into the passion the fourth part of the EP squared construct, which is passion. And this is being led by the millennials, right? And Generation Z, who quite honestly, many of them won't even do business with you if you are not authentic and transparent and passionate about your products and services in your company. So that I think needs to be in there. So customers, our prosumer customers, they need to know that you're passionate, that you care about your company, about your employees, about your products and services, and vice versa, right? So I think that is going to be more important into the future, and I think that definitely belongs in the construct. So that is what that's what I came up with, and I think it I think it lends itself very well to future marketing planning. Well, it certainly made a lot of of sense after having read the book. So, John, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Yeah, so I I think this book serves anyone well in terms of really doing some deep thinking, right? So this book, it's not strategic, it's not tactical. It's more, it's a visionary, big picture thinking kind of book. So I really want folks to read a chapter or two, put it down, think about it, you know, get with their team, talk about about it. So that that is part of the answer is I want folks to, to really think deeply about, about how they could be better and, and you know, more efficient as, as marketers and more progressive as marketers. And then second, I would say, I talk about all these new technologies like like VR, for example, virtual reality. And my, my advice is, hey, just dip your toe in the water, test it out, right? Come up with some kind of idea using virtual reality content and then get with a few of your customers and do a little test run and, and just play with the technology a little bit. Um, I think that's a good way of, of sort of inching your way into the future and being innovative is try some of this stuff out just in a small way. And I think that will enable you to get confidence in some of the other things and enable you to, to, to have that progressive, you know, out of the box, innovative thinking approach that you really need to have as a marketer in the future. So those are the two things that I would I would hope that companies do after they read this book. Yeah, you know, it just reminds me of one of my favorite expressions, the secret of getting ahead is getting started. Just start yeah. thinking about the future and then just go play around with some of this stuff. You will be on the cutting edge, I guarantee. And also, John, just this focus group of one, as I was reading the book, I guess I guess I should say that tingling means it's working because as I was making notes about the book, about every fourth one wasn't about the book, but about something from the book that I was 
I was going to go follow up on. So, nice. <laughs> yeah, now I'm on to you. Okay. So, John, you talked about a lot of books, you know, and even this conversation, but what books really have inspired your working career if, it, if it's not Future Shock and Megatrends? Yeah, well, there's a guy named Bob Bly. Bob Bly is a, a very well-known copywriter. He's been in the copywriting business for, you know, 35 years. And before it was called content marketing, it was called copywriting, right? So Bob Bly wrote a book about 12 years ago, 14 years ago, called The Copywriter's Handbook. And this book was super valuable for me because I read it when I was still working for other people, when I still had a corporate job. And it basically gave me the blueprint to start my copywriting business in 2003. So hugely influential. I will always be indebted to Bob Bly for writing that book. And I've become friends with him over the years. So that that's definitely one of them. Second, I would say Awaken the Giant Within by Tony Robbins. You know, think what you want about Tony Robbins. But this man is a deep thinker. He is a revolutionary thinker. He has helped millions of people around the world, you know, cheesy infomercial or not, he has put his mark on the world. And I think that book was absolutely amazing. I read that book 15 years ago. And and he's still today, 35 years later, impacting lots of people around the world. So I would say that book also very influential. And then third, I would say uh, Alvin Toffler with The Third Wave in 1980. As I mentioned earlier in the interview, uh, that book was very influential for me as well. You know, on Tony Robbins, I recently watched the documentary I Am Not Your Guru and thoroughly yeah. enjoyed it. Just fascinating. So, John, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? Yeah, so futuremarketingbook.com is probably the best way to find out more about me and the book. They can uh, download chapter one in the introduction of the book there and they can interface and, and you know connect with me there, uh, futuremarketingbook.com. And of course, they can find me on Twitter. I'm very responsive on Twitter, and I'm, I'm at John Wibben, J-O-N-W-U-E-B-B-E-N at Twitter. And also, there's some extra bonuses by, I believe, just subscribing to your blog. Is that right? Yep, yep, you got it. So, And they can find that on uh, futuremarketingbook.com? You, you got it. Okay. Final quote. My message, don't be overwhelmed. Keep the faith. Hold on. We are on this ride together, and in the future, that's even truer than it is today. Everything will work out because everything always does. Not only will things work out, they will work out beautifully and with purpose. Although the future is not certain, the fundamental nature of the marketing practice, the act of genuinely connecting with people who are interested in what you are doing and them connecting with you so that together you can positively impact people's lives with a product, service, and or platform experience will be intact. The name of the book is Future Marketing, Winning in the Prosumer Age. The author is John Wibben. John, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks, Doug. I really enjoyed it. And that closes the book on episode 123 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. And that's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And if your next event needs some inspiration and entertainment, I'd be happy to present to your group key insights from over 100 marketing and sales books that have been featured on the Marketing Book Podcast. To contact me, just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave a message or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett or send me a tweet at my Twitter handle, Marketing Book. I look forward to hearing from you. And please join us next time as we welcome Simon Kelly to the show to talk about the book he has co-authored with Paul Johnston and Stacey Danheiser, Valueology 
aligning sales and marketing to shape and deliver profitable customer value propositions. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.